We're going to read 1 Corinthians 15. Um, We're going to start in verse 12 and read to verse 28. After I read it, I'll declare to you this is the word of the Lord. Um, If you've ever been curious why we do that, it's to distinguish these words from my words um, and to give thanks to God that he's spoken to us. It it is a marvel, um, speaking of things to be grateful for, that God has not left us in the dark to just try to figure stuff out. He's actually spoken to us decisively and clearly in his words. So here now, First uh, Corinthians 15. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that stands out if you uh, start um, an annual or double twice annual or whatever your Bible reading plan is, um, is eventually you get to the book of Leviticus. And it actually strikes me every year when I get to Leviticus, and if you haven't got to Leviticus yet, like ever, go for it. Um, but this, one of the things that strikes me about the book of Leviticus is how bloody biblical worship is. There is, from the very beginning, at the heart of what it meant to be a people who worshiped the living God, the reality of blood and death. I mean, if you can imagine going to the temples, the temple courts, say at Passover, but when every household was required to slaughter a lamb, um, some estimates were that upwards of fifty to 100,000 people, depending on the year, would make the annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And there in the temple courts, all on the same day, would all slaughter a lamb over Passover. C- can you imagine the blood? C- can you imagine the smells? That there is at the heart of what God wanted established at the very beginning, a tangible, visceral connection to be seen, to be smelled, to be thought about and reflected on, 
the connection between our sin and the curse of death. It was there all the way back in the garden. It continues all the way through Genesis with the patriarchs. It's established again during the Exodus. And as the tabernacle is built, um, a, 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 a a complex system of blood sacrifices um, that, that would occur on a daily basis again and again and again and again for people to be cleansed of their sin, um, for them to not have the curse of death constantly hanging over their heads. Something had to die. I think in our day that we lack a reminder of the weight and the reality of sin. Sin is euphemized, but we call it things like brokenness. But we call it, I just screwed up. Or that's my Enneagram number. Or that's just my personality. Or you should have seen my dad. Like, like we, we approach sin as a small thing, as a light thing, as a, um, as a tick mark in a book that we happen to screw up this week in some small way. We treat our attitudes um, with our spouses um, as a small thing. We treat our words or our thoughts about those around us who probably annoy us um, as small things. Um, we treat what we look at on our screens, the, the, the tone we take online. Um, we, we take our, our laziness and our failure to be fruitful. Um, we treat our attitudes towards our children or children towards our parents as small things, as like things. And yet from the very, very beginning, sin has required blood. Sin is always required death. And the gift of this season, the season of Lent for the church, though often abused and misunderstood, is it's not about a season of merely kind of focusing and doing some sort of fasting work in order to try to get back into God's good graces. Whatever experience you've had with the season of Lent in the past, I often hear that's the experience that people have had with Lent. I give up social media, I give up coffee, I give up, I don't, I don't, but I, I, give, up, I give up alcohol, I give up meat, whatever the thing may be. Um, and, and, and it's treated as though you're, you've now, for the next 40 days, stepped on a treadmill of works, um, whereby now on Easter, you've kind of achieved a new, a, a new you've kind of leveled up in, in terms of holiness, and, and you get supersized like Super Mario, and, and then that's how Lent works. That's not what Lent is for. And my prayer for us as a church is that um, Lent wouldn't be about any signs of pride, any signs of self-righteousness. In fact, that whole conception of Lent, that whole twisting of, of, of really um, what, what becomes a concentrated version of the way a lot of Christians, a lot of religious people go about thinking about their Christianity um, uh, is, is, is quite the opposite of what my prayer is this season would be about and ultimately what would mark most deeply who we are as a people who've been redeemed and saved by Jesus. You see, as a people, we are, as Martin Luther said, to be marked by repentance. 
But repentance isn't kind of a morbid um, self-introspection. It's not being dour all the time. Um, It's not being hopeless all the time. Um, And it's not being downtrodden all the time. Um, You see, we are a people who repent with hope. We're a people who look um, to the resurrection of Jesus and we count the, the precious reality that death has been conquered. That death has been defeated. The whole mark of repentance, the whole rhythm of the repentance um, that should mark the Christian life is we are a people who fall on our face before, before God, recognizing the gravity of our sin, uh, but, but looking away from our sin and looking to behold and to see the risen Christ, the one who bore our sins on the cross, the one who purchased for us forgiveness and mercy and grace, and the one who has done away with forever the penalty of blood and death that has hung over so much of biblical history and still hangs over all those who refuse to cling to Christ and to turn away from sin. My prayer for us this season is recognizing the reality that in Adam, sin entered the world. And because of sin entering the world, all men die. Is that we would look away from our sin. We'd look away from every attempt to try to like save the world on our own or save ourselves on our own or save our families on our own or save our siblings on our own or save our friends on our own. And we would look away from our own strength. We would look away from our own might. We would look away from every other thing that you might put your hope in and that you might cry out to and find enormous and glorious and life-giving hope in, in the person and the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. That we as a people wouldn't be marked by self-righteous works. We as a people wouldn't be marked by our political opinions, our opinions about society and culture. We as a people most deeply wouldn't be marked merely by well-ordered families or relationships or even the hard work that you do during the week at whatever your job or vocation is. Oh, may all of those things be true of us. But when anyone encounters us, may they know most deeply about us above and beyond everything else that the most deep-seated reality of who we are is we are a people who are rescued by Jesus. We are a people who treasure Jesus. We are a people who delight in Jesus. We are a people washed by Jesus. We are a people forgiven by Jesus. We are a people over whom death no longer reigns. So may this season, even this Ash Wednesday, where we remember pointedly the reality that sin leads to death. May we do so even tonight with hope. Not with dour faces, not with a a faked solemnity. May we remember this night and may we encounter all of our sin as Christians, as those who have great confidence in the work of Christ great hope and the promise of the resurrection who have been washed with Jesus 
and cleansed by Jesus. And the promise given is that we will be raised with Jesus. And tonight, we're going to do something that for those of you who came from non-liturgical backgrounds, um, it's going to seem a little bit weird. And those of you who came from liturgical backgrounds, maybe Catholic backgrounds or Anglican backgrounds, um, it's going to seem weird because we're going to do it a little bit different. So, welcome to weird. Um, uh, in the tradition, you, you come forward, and uh, um, in the past, and I've actually been a part of churches that we did this, you, you take the ash and you put a cross on the forehead of the person coming forward, and you say to them, from dust you, dust you have come, and to dust you'll return. Um, I, I've found a number of churches and um, have, have bought into the idea, and tonight you're not going to hear that. Tonight you're going to hear, to death you were condemned, and from death you have been saved. And as you leave tonight, you're not going to leave here and get to go out to dinner with ash on your head and show everyone how holy you were. Um, we, we've set in back our bowl where we baptize people who get baptized in this church. Because reality is, is all of us have been marked by death, but our baptism actually is the mark that death has been washed from us. And so tonight as you leave, we'll come forward here in a moment, and, and I'll mark you with ash, I'll declare to you again that to death you were condemned and from death you've been redeemed. And then as you leave, I'm going to ask that you would wash the ash off your forehead with the waters of your baptism to remind you that in Christ, death and sin have been washed from you, cleansed from you. Um, That you're no longer a a people marked by by the curse of death. You are a people marked by Jesus in the waters of baptism. So I want to pray for us, and then um, it's going to be quiet in here. In fact, um, all you'll hear is my voice and the occasional squeal, I'm sure. Um, and you can sit there and pray, reflect on the, um, the heinousness of your sin and the glory and the beauty of the cross as long as you need to. But when you're ready, I'd ask you to come forward um, and receive the ash, and then to leave being reminded again of your baptism. The death has been cleansed from you. So let's pray.